Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. We are here with Gabby Salazar for the next episode of the Nature Photographer podcast for NAMPA, as well as working here with Wild and Exposed. So we have Gabby Salazar as our guest today. We have Mark Raycroft and Jason Loftus from Wild and Exposed. And I am Dawn Wilson, your NAMPA host for this episode. So let's get into it. We have a... Yet again, a group from all across North America. We have Mark up in Canada. We have Jason in Utah, Gabby in Florida, and I am out here in Colorado. So what have you guys been up to? Gabby, what have you been up to in Florida? I think it's probably still a little warm down there. I know we've had snow here in Colorado. So I have uh, mostly been out here visiting my dad, actually, for the last few days. It's the first time I've seen him since... Uh, probably January, February. So my husband and I kind of pre-quarantined and got tested for COVID and did everything really safely and have now had a, a few days down here with them, uh, my, my dad and my stepmom. And it's been really nice getting out, taking some photos on the beach down here um, in Southern Florida. And this morning I was just watching some sandhill cranes in the backyard, which was great. Uh, regretted not having my all my gear with me. I just had my iPhone, but it was nice to just take a moment to enjoy enjoy seeing the cranes. Yeah, I haven't seen any cranes in a, in a while. So what about you, Mark? They're, you have a trip coming up. Yeah, they're like a harbinger of fall for me. Normally in when I'm in Alaska or the Yukon, they're starting to migrate south early September. And I'm unable to do that trip this year, but I saw some in Ontario this week too. I love hearing their call as they fly over. Just something triggers to autumn, the sandhill cranes that is. But yeah, it's been another week of editing and getting caught up, trying to get everything lined up so that I can somewhat escape the office. Although in this profession, office travels with us, right? And we have to be able to ship images and, and edit in the field and, and all that stuff. But yeah, at the end of this week, I'm hoping to head into the Rocky Mountains and disappear into the wilderness for two or three weeks there. Can't wait. Jason, I think I heard a rumor that you're heading to Colorado soon. Uh, yeah, actually, it's interesting you mentioned the Sandhill Cranes. Um, I actually saw uh, uh, four of them flying over as I was headed home from Colorado a week ago or so. But it's, So it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I hadn't seen any for a while. But yeah, I'm getting ready to head back i've been editing some images and getting ready to head back to colorado for a couple of weeks so uh it's my favorite time of the year the elk rut you know my neck swells up i get get excited and <laughs> colors change and everything else so i'm i'm looking forward to that i'm actually looking forward to this conversation too gabrielle yeah me too great well yeah i've been kind of doing the same thing it's it is elk rut season we've had we actually had some elk right outside our door yesterday tearing up the golf course and one of them had his antlers are broken already so he's been pretty pretty heavy into fighting with some of the other other big boys so but it is a fun time of year but otherwise I haven't been done a, a ton of photography this past week or so let's get into talking to Gabby about some of the things that she does so this is a Nampa podcast um, we've basically started this podcast to to bring awareness around some of the projects some of the Nampa members are doing and we've been working with Wild and Exposed team they've already got a great platform they do a lot of a lot of chatting about nature photography and travel photography and adventures and and Gabby's had a ton of adventures. She's gone all over the world to photograph out in Borneo and the Amazon. Um, so we'd like to hear a little bit about you know some of the things that you're doing and maybe some of your favorite projects. Maybe what you have coming up. You're working on a PhD right now as well. I'm not sure how soon that's getting ready to finish, but I'm sure you're looking forward to it. Absolutely. Yeah, the PhD is a process. So we can we can come back to that in a minute. I always kind of say I'm 33 now. And I always say my 20s were awesome. Like I spent most of my 20s just doing photography, uh, having the opportunity to travel and take photographs in a lot of really wonderful places and to spend extended periods of time in those places. So I spent about a year in almost a year in Peru. Uh, right out of college, working on a photography project, which was really uh, kind of a critical juncture in my life because um, the U.S. Fulbright program gave me a photography uh, fellowship as a Fulbright scholar to go and 
be in Peru and to create images and to have that extended time to really be able to focus on photography and learn about storytelling and work through trial and error and very difficult place to photograph the rainforest um, was a really uh, wonderful formative experience for me and enabled me to build a portfolio that then uh, helped kind of launch my career uh, in photography. And I think it's something that I would have been harder to do without that extended focus time, just uh, taking images. So that was a really important project. And since then, projects have taken me all over the globe. Uh, but one that I worked on that was really close to my heart a couple years ago uh, was one in the island of Mauritius, which is in the Indian Ocean. And I got to spend about six months there uh, photographing all of their endangered species recovery programs, which wow. are among the most, uh, you know, some of the most successful in the world in terms of uh, saving birds that are on the brink of extinction uh, from the brink of extinction and bringing them back and creating and facilitating healthy populations in the wild. So that was a really, really special program project. And, and uh, I still keep in touch with colleagues there. So was that academic or was that something that was you also published for general consumption that way through some media platform or magazine? Yeah, that was that was a purely kind of photography. I mean, I was working and collaborating with a lot of researchers and academics, but that was before I kind of dipped my toes back into academia. Uh, and so that went out in various publications, um, travel magazines, you know, online platforms like BBC Wildlife online. Uh, but it also, I think for me, the, the big accomplishment there was that uh, we got a grant from the United States Embassy in Mauritius to create a traveling photo exhibit uh, that has now gone to at least a dozen, if not more sites across the island, to museums, schools, libraries, and has now been reprinted and has gone on a separate island, Rodrigues, that is part of Mauritius. Um, and so there's two traveling exhibits. And I really loved that part of the project because I was able to leave an exhibit behind with the conservation partner, the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation, and to also travel with the exhibit while I was living there for a bit um, to see people's reactions to it and to have these conversations. Uh, so to me, that was like a, a much bigger deal than having the images published in, in a magazine. Sure. It, it, but So your ac academics, and correct me if I'm wrong, is in photography, but is for in education and conservation, right? And that's the primary directive or purpose. Absolutely. You're, no, you're not wrong at all. So basically that the Mauritius project was really important for me because it was this extended project, but it got me really interested in this kind of broader question of what types of images influence people to support conservation? What, um, you know, are, is it the beautiful image, um, of the dolphin in the wild, or is it the image of the dolphin caught in a net or impacted by marine plastic, you know, and is it the positive image, is it the negative image, is it a combination of the two? Um, and these are questions that, you know, we can think about how we react as individuals, uh, but there's been very little academic research on this topic. And so when I was in Mauritius doing this project and these exhibits, I kept thinking like, oh, could I could I do this better? Could I frame the messaging in a different way and have a bigger impact? And when I started digging into the literature, I found, you know, a recent kind of literature review found about 30 to 40 studies on this topic, on animal imagery. Um, and many of them aren't even really empirical in that they don't really collect data and try to answer a question with data. It's more, you know, they describe a case study or a situation. And so we really have very little knowledge of what works and what doesn't. But, you know, as photographers, we're doing this all the time. We're putting images out. We're trying to convey a message or information sometimes, depending on, on the goal. And I think we can do it better. I think it's fascinating. You know, like you say, is it a marriage of that beauty image plus the polluted beach or what's it, the plastics that are causing the shorebirds to populations to plummet? How do you marry that up in the most effective way that people remember it and are moved by it? I, that's fascinating. So this is your PhD that you're currently working on at, in Florida at University School of For Forest Resources and Conservation. Exactly. Yeah, so I'm in my second year right now. And I don't have any answers. <laughs> I still have lots of questions. I mean, I, you know, you pick up little bits from 
you know, what other studies people have done. So I can talk a little bit about that. But I have just started doing interviews here, looking at the issue of marine plastic pollution in particular, and how visuals convey um, ocean conservation, and basically trying to answer this basic question, like, what motivates people? And how can we do it better? Look through through your website. I mean, it's there's some gorgeous photos in there, but it's the storytelling that I find fascinating behind the different collections that you've posted on there. And, and on your Instagram page, it's the same thing. It's the interaction with people and animals and the environmental portraits and the portraits of, of animals and all brought together. The story it tells is fascinating. Well, yeah, it's a, I mean, I think that's the hard part is, is um, shaping the story, knowing what story you want to want to tell. There's a whole field of research um, and this whole theory called framing theory, which as photographers, we can kind of intuitively get what framing theory might be, right? The, what we choose to put in the viewfinder affects how people perceive that image, right? We can take a photo in Cades Cove, for example, and we can just in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and we can just use our long lens and focus in on the, the deer, or we can zoom back with a wide angle and we can show a huge line of cars, you know, <laughs> in the distance. And that might convey that, wow, there's all these people connecting with nature. Or if it's framed at a different moment, it might convey that, wow, there are these people impacting nature and maybe there's over tourism. And so framing research is kind of the same thing. It's saying what we choose, how we choose to frame a message impacts how people process and act on that information. And so what I'm really interested in is taking that and applying it to visuals, not just looking at text, but saying, ah, how does what we convey visually affect our behavior? Well, not to be cliche, sorry, but an image is worth a thousand words, they say, right? So we have the text. How many people stop at a display and exhibit an educational piece and read the text unless the visual there brings them in? I totally agree. And I think that that is a really good point. And a lot of research or other research has shown that when we look at like a news article, for instance, we tend to remember what the visual shows more than what the text says, even if we've read the text. And so if those are in competition, if you have a visual frame that shows a solution and text that shows a problem or talks about a problem, we might remember the solution and forget the problem or vice versa. And so, uh, you know, I think it is important that we consider what messages we want to convey, especially on like social media and all of these, you know, platforms where you're just consuming the visuals so rapidly. It's, it's kind of linked in a, um, a bit of a story on, on a side note. One of my very best friends has been working in conservation education his whole life and worked as the vice president of Vancouver Aquarium and is now the CEO of the Toronto Zoo. And his whole purpose is to try and take every component of that zoo and link it to wild populations and conservations and, and, and get the message out. And what you're describing to me is just hand in hand with those efforts is making sure that the visual storytelling and how that's done. I think the research, especially if you're approaching it with a statistical perspective, is so relevant for people. I mean, when you have... 15,000 people going through a facility on a, on a daily basis, perhaps, there's tremendous opportunity to move them to care about individual species, entire ecosystems, or just planet Earth. And those visuals are so critical for that engagement. So I love what you're doing. I, I, it would be so much fun just to in, inquisitively work on that project to see what moved people. Props. Yeah, no, that's what I'm trying to say. Ah, thank you. Well, <laughs> it is, I, I need I need the props because I'm in the middle of the interview process and the research process, and it is, you know, it's a four-year process at minimum, kind of getting the getting the PhD. And so I do miss being out in the field uh, because I do find that I'm able to get out a little bit, you know, on the weekends, but most of my time is spent reading these days. Uh, so so not having the opportunity to actually take the pictures uh, definitely keeps me inside and uh, not as happy as I was when I was doing photography more no full doubt. time. It's like, it's I like think the editing all season. That, though. <laughs> yeah, I, of course. Yeah. We all have photo businesses and writing businesses and yeah, it's all the same. You hear so often people say, Oh, I love what you do. It's gotta be so cool. But you know, a lot of times people forget that 90% of what you do is still behind a desk. So 
Of so course. for my job, I'm I'm, a, I'm in quality control. So I'm a quality manager for a corporation on my full-time job. And um, so I do a lot of statistics And for my job. I'm involved in Six Sigma and some things like that. I don't know if you've heard of some of those things. But um, anyways, I'm very intrigued with the approach that you're taking. Is there something – could you maybe touch a little bit about that? I mean just what's the process and the approach you're taking on your study and, and maybe, you know, maybe that's something we could all be thinking about too. Sure. So my study, so, so generally when there's less known about a research topic, like there's been less work, you start in kind of a more, um, what we call exploratory phase, right? So research kind of goes on a spectrum from exploratory research where we're kind of trying to understand themes and ideas and patterns and then moves towards confirmatory, which is more like using statistical models or statistical methods to try to say, is there an effect here? To you know, how big is the effect? Um, to what extent is this an effect? And so I'm right now more in the kind of exploratory phase where I am doing more qualitative uh, research, where I'm doing interviews with people and really trying to understand how they perceive images, if there are differences in those perceptions across different groups, um, for instance, across, you know, one thing I'm interested in is across generations. Uh, you know, do millennials have a different perception of environmental images, having grown up in a very different, you know, ecosystem? And <laughs> I mean, in terms of technology, in terms of the time we're in, where climate change is constantly on our on our minds and in the public conversation, then um, baby boomers who maybe have a different form or relationship to nature because of spending more time outside growing up or, you know, all of these different kind of factors, which are hard to kind of, you know, put into little variables in a statistical model because human behavior is so complex and our relationships to nature are so complex. Uh, but that's kind of what I'm in in the phase right now is this exploratory phase of kind of trying to understand where the variation lies what the questions are that could be asked with more statistical methods later on to see if there is a broader effect in the population. What a challenge, but interesting yeah. to wrap your head around, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Sometimes you want to, it makes your head spin because, because it's so interesting. It's just like these conversations, you know, I love interviewing people too, because for the research, because it's just so fascinating to understand people's, people's journeys and their, you know, how they develop, their, their perceptions of nature, where that comes from, and how they differ. So during the interview process, do you show them different styles of imagery at some point and ask for the reaction and what moves them in different ways? Is that the process? Exactly. exactly. So in one of the studies, that's what I'm, that's what I'll be doing is, is, is kind of giving people different, you know, those positively and negatively framed images and talking with them. And like I said, uh, it's going to be a while before the results <laughs> of this year are out. So it's, it's, uh, it's still in, pro in progress. But I will say that what is interesting to me from some of the research that I've read is that people can have radically different perceptions of visuals. And so, you know, coming at it from, you know, as people who spend a lot of time in nature, um, at, as photographers, uh, we might have a very different perception of an image than someone who feels less connected to nature in their daily lives. And so the, the big question for me is, if most of the people that work at environmental organizations have these strong existing connections to nature, are they just marketing to other people from that perspective? Or are they considering these other relationships and other perspectives that people have? So that's just a question that interests me. And like I said, I don't have an answer yet. <laughs> that's very interesting. So just uh, from a biolog biologist and the scientific study point of view, when you show somebody an image, do you like have a scale? Is it like one to 10? Is this a positive experience or a negative to get their reaction? Is that how you link it statistically? Yeah, exactly. So you can ask about... Um, you can ask uh, kind of with a scale one to seven, one to nine. That's what how a lot of this research is done. There's been a lot of research already done on climate change images, which is quite interesting. And you know, um, what kind of what kind of images of of showing the impacts of climate change people resonate with people. And some of those studies have shown, for instance, that people really want to see um, images that they perceive to be authentic. So that's one of the kind of scales that they would ask, like, how real does this, you know, look to you? Or how authentic does this look to you? Um, because uh, people don't want to see things that they perceive as being staged. That's just the results of one study, but that gives you an example. Um, but you could also ask people how negative or positive it makes them feel or how motivated it makes them feel 
or, you know, how much money they would give to help that dolphin, you know, if they had X Mm. amount of dollars. Those are the kind of questions that you can ask. It is difficult. These are very difficult things to study because um, there's often a difference between what we say our behavior would be and what our behavior actually is. So we can say all day that we're going to compost or recycle or we intend to do something and whether or not we actually go home and do that thing is a very, very different question. And it's difficult to get at that data. You know, along those lines with everything going on with COVID this year, I've noticed, you know, we can't, we can't use reusable things anymore. You can't go to Starbucks and use a reusable cup. We can't use reusable bags at the grocery store. So it has, because of everything with COVID, has it kind of changed the direction of your studies? Are you finding that results? And I realize you haven't gotten to the point where you're getting results yet, but have you seen any sort of change in the interviews you've been conducting? I don't know if I've seen any change so far. I'm very much at the beginning of my, you know, data collection because I'm I'm only about, you know, done a fifth of the interviews I need to do. Uh, So I don't know if there are patterns there, but it's certainly something I'm thinking about. I'm taking a class right now at the University of Florida on conservation behavior, which is a whole field of study that looks at how different um, social science theories uh, help explain why behave in, you know, pro-environmental ways or why we don't. Uh, And it's a really wonderful class taught by my advisor. And we are talking a lot about the effect of the pandemic on pro-environmental behaviors. And I mean, one of the things that, you know, any behavior change, you kind of have to make it a habit, right? Like you're doing, even if it's not related to the environment, it's easier usually uh, to exercise if you make it a habit of exercising every morning after you get up and you have your cup of coffee right? If you forget and you don't do it, you can find excuses throughout the day to not get off the couch. And so creating that habit or cues that cue you into a behavior um, can help you create a habit. Now, the pandemic kind of throws us off in a lot of ways, right? Like we, I mean, in a lot of ways, but certainly with when you think about these behaviors, like bringing your water bottle um, or bringing your reusable cup to Starbucks, you can no longer do that. And so one thing that I've been really curious about is how many people are going to resume those habits post-pandemic because we've now broken that habit cycle. So a lot of people had kind of shifted these behaviors. They were doing doing well. And now we've broken that. And it's really going to take a concerted effort on everyone's part to shift back to creating those habits again when we're able to reinstate those. It'll be interesting to see how photography becomes involved with that, that process. You know, because it was a slow process, you know, and as photography and digital photography and social media kind of advanced at a slower pace. Now it's there. So is it going to, will that reestablishment of the behaviors and the habits be fast paced a little bit more because of photography? Just a general thought. I don't know if there's really an answer to that today, but. I hope so. No, I think it's an interesting thought. Yeah. Yeah. There are places in New Zealand when we were there last winter, there were no plastic bags. It was either reusable or paper. All of New Zealand. It's like awesome. You know, and my reusable cup, I still carry it in my car. I fill it at home, but I can't, if I have to get more coffee for some reason, I can't use it. But I can't wait for that to be reinstated. It's the single-use plastic issue. Yeah, it's gone gone through the roof. It's a soapbox of mine, um, but since the <laughs> pandemic, unfortunately. So those that do care, obviously, I think will re-engage quickly. And, and hopefully there'll be some kind of media campaign to help somehow, somewhere that's funded, right? Who does that? It's a good question, and it'll be a, an important effort, mm-hmm. certainly. So, do you use all your own imagery for these these interviews? No, or? no, okay. I don't. No, I use other people's images mostly. Uh, it's 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 a it's an interesting uh, thing to try to find images for for studies because uh, you want to reduce variables as much as possible, and as you know. <laughs> Images are very different. So it's, you know, I didn't want to use, I don't, I'm trying not to use Photoshop, um, although it's certainly a possibility, just because I'm concerned about authenticity and people, people are pretty smart visual consumers. I think they can tell, you know, when you've stuck something completely foreign into an image uh, sometimes, unless somebody's really good at Photoshop. And so uh, I am mostly using other, other people's images. It's a lot to work with out there. A lot of a lot of amazing images in the world. <laughs> have you have you found that most people have been willing to let you use their images for this kind of stuff? 
people have been incredibly generous. Yeah, I am. I am um, paying to license people's images because I think it's really important to support photographers. Uh, it's certainly not much because it's from a research study, uh, but I am compensating them at least a little bit with a license because I think that uh, as we expand this research, hopefully this field of research, like we need to make sure photographers can also continue to create really great images. It's a big part of this, yeah. So as you go through and create, I guess more so in the past, not so much with your PhD program right now, but in the past, you found a way to combine into the you know, different types of photos into stories. What kind of advice would you have for people and how, if they're interested in it, how can they improve and uh, to build a package of photos to tell a story? And then how do they find a way to, to use those for some sort of conservation project, whether it's local to them or on a larger scale? Yeah, so I um, always recommend, especially when I teach workshops, like using a story map as a way to get started. So I put kind of a, you know, in the middle of a piece of paper, the story or the subject. And then I just put little, you know, draw little diagonals out from that and put little bubbles and say, here's how I could, you know, here's an aspect that's interesting. Okay, so I'm, you know, let's take, I'm, I'm here in Florida. So uh, and I know there's a lot of great NAMPA members working on a story like this on the Florida Panther. Uh, and so, um, like Carlton Ward Jr., I know um, Max Stone, some other wonderful photographers that are really focusing in on that. But you could, you know, think about the Panther and then think about the image of the scientists and think about the image of the Panther's footprints and think about the image of um, what is the barrier to the Panther moving? And maybe that's fences or maybe that's homes or subdivisions. And so then, oh, well, maybe that would be interesting if I did it with a drone because I can't really, it's hard to just make that a dynamic image if you're on the ground. And so that's kind of my process is I will map out and put down all of the possibilities I can think of. And I'll even keep that by my desk while I'm reading academic literature, popular literature, stories about that topic. And then I'll keep mapping out as I go through that and say, oh, I didn't know they were doing radio tracking. I should certainly have an image of radio tracking to tell that story. And obviously you can't usually make all of those images, especially if you're doing this as a passion project and you're not, you know, able to fly around and zip around to, to, to have all of that access and create the images. Uh, but I think it's a great way to be prepared for the image when it comes up. If, if an opportunity does present itself, you know, you're not just standing in the background thinking, oh, this is interesting, but the panthers, you know, or the, the bird is not in a really beautiful place right now. It's being handled by some people. So I'm not going to make that image. I'm going to wait till the bird looks like it's in the wild again. If you know that you need that image of that human interaction, you're going to get in there and be ready to make the shot. And so I think that having that planning process is super important when you're doing storytelling. It's really no different than just even going out for a shoot, right? I mean, it's all about knowing what images you want to capture while you're out there and having an idea of what you're, what's the story you're trying to tell or what stories you're trying to tell over your shoot. Right. So that's a, that's really neat. That's good advice. Yeah, absolutely. It's the same, it's the same thing. And some of us, I think just go out kind of opportunistically and, you know, we think, and of course there's always that element in nature photography because you never know, but, sure. but I do think planning is a really big part of storytelling. I'll even do that with, you know, if I'll take a, a trip, let's say, you know, I've got a trip that I'm trying to put together for the next week or so. It's, you know, there's a shot list that I keep in my, and sometimes I'll even go as far as putting a list down. You know, these are, you know, the types of weather conditions or these are the types of positions. But, you know, half the time, like you said, it's an opportunistic situation and you photograph, you keep your eye out for really good photo ops and, and kind of work with it. But yeah, if you want to come home with, without going, oh, dang, I forgot about that. You know, I wish I had taken that or, you know, seeing people photographing other animals. Um, I know that's something really big here in Rocky Mountain National Park because of the with the dynamics of what's changing here with wildlife viewing. You know, that's a big part of the story and how things have have changed over the years. But I really like how you map that out on paper. I think for our listeners, it's an interesting perspective and how you sit down and you can just start that way on a piece of paper and branch out and brainstorm and that's very applicable for article writing, storytelling, and, and the idea of putting a photo package together with some kind of text directive. It's a great visual that you described there really well. I suspect that so many NAMPA members are, are familiar with you, but we, I think we should just do a little background shout out about Gabby and that you were the youngest president 
of Nampa. And I'll just sort of throw a couple of things out here. In 2002, won Nature's Best Youth category. 2004, BBC Young Photographer of the Year. You've been photographing since you were 11 years old and traveled to 20 different countries and contribute to a lot of different publications. There's, I, and I have questions about some of these destinations that sound absolutely amazing, but what a, what a life experience you've already had so, and it's so applicable to what you're doing academically now. Yeah, it's been, it has been really wonderful. I really have to, you know, I'm, I'm here visiting my dad, as I said at the beginning, and, you know, it's really him just taking me out in a, in a backyard bird garden near where I grew up in North Carolina and sitting me in front of a camera at 11 that got me started. And, uh, you know, I'd always liked nature, but I hadn't really paid as close attention to it as I as I did when I focused through that lens and I saw those details on the feathers of a bird and I thought, wow, this is, this is really cool. Like this is something that I want to keep doing. And yeah, it's been, it's been great. And in Nampa has played, I mean, such a, a huge role in that uh, because I was also, I think I was 14 when I was in Nampa high school scholarship recipient. And so I got to go to the summit at 14 in Jacksonville, Florida, actually, that was my first one. And, uh, it was just a, you know, a life, a life changing experience. It, it really can't be said any other way because I met nine other high school students who had similar interests, which was incredible in and of itself. Uh, but then I also met NAMPA members from all over the country who also just welcomed me with open arms and created this community, which I think is what NAMPA is all about is it's about community, you know, uh, it's about trying to find like-minded people. We, we come from different, a lot of us have day jobs and we come from different professional backgrounds, but we come together and we just love photography and, and being outdoors. And uh, I just got involved after that. So I should mention a little bit about the Nampa High School program. So yeah. it's a program that's funded by, our, by the Nampa Foundation um, that allows 10 students, um, 10 high school students, um, fully paid to go out to various locations, depending upon where the summit is. And summit is held every other year. So the students spend that time at summit with other nature photographers. They work on a project, they collaborate, they put together a video that then gets distributed. Um, so it's a great experience for, for high school kids that have an interest in nature photography that might want to pursue it a little bit further. Um, a lot of students have come out of the program and have continued to go on to like Gabby has have continued to pursue it as a career, have done amazing things with it, told great stories, had an impact on conservation efforts. Um, so it's it's really a great foundation for for learning about nature photography and really kind of getting your teeth into into some of the content around it. Absolutely. And I know um, I, I helped lead the program in Tremont one year, uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And one of the young women who was one of the students that year and I've kept in really close touch and I know that it, I, I you know, have so many anecdotal stories of how it has changed students' lives. Like, I know that she keeps in touch with two of the other students from that year, and they talk every single day on, you know, WhatsApp or awesome. text and often on the phone. And they support each other in their photography, and they're all doing great work. And uh, one of them just had, I think, an, an article in Outdoor Photographer. I mean, just incredible outcomes, I think, of, of creating that community. Yeah, unfortunately, with COVID this year, we we had to had to postpone it for a little bit, but it it's still out there. It's a great scholarship program. Um, people can kind of keep an eye on the Nampa website or the Nampa Facebook page to find out when the next opening or when the next application process is. Um, I know Gabby has always spoken very highly of it, and so have other other students that have come out of it. So, what else do you think you might want to do um, with your PhD once you finish that up? Oh, that's a great question. I think I'm, I am interested in uh, helping with communication efforts of large conservation-oriented nonprofits. So that is definitely something that I would like to do. A lot of them are already doing amazing work. Um, I'd love to bring some more uh, research in there to inform some of those efforts to just help them be more effective. I'm really interested in the area of environmental philanthropy as well. So um, you know, really not just how it changes our behaviors in terms of whether or not we use plastic water bottles or reusable water bottles, but also what encourages people to 
write a check or volunteer time for a conservation organization. So that is um, a big topic of interest for me because globally, very, very small percentage of philanthropic donations go to the environment. And I, I'm, I should have checked this beforehand, but I, I think it's certainly less than 3%. Okay. So, wow. and that is like, that's our foundation, right? Like, mm-hmm. we, <laughs> it's like, we're not putting any maintenance into our home, <laughs> just like letting the roof go all the time. So I see I tremendous opportunity there. I mean, with those organizations to tweak and improve their media presence for that type of financial recruitment. Yeah. So that's, that's a, that's a big topic um, that I'd like to delve into more for sure. So I, I don't know if we should jump into some of these expedition things, but I saw on your website at gabbysalazar.com, new volcano expedition. Right away, I'm like, big question marks are popping out of my head. All right, so with your PhD obviously taking up the vast majority of your time, are you still have some field projects that you're looking forward to? I don't have any planned immediately. Uh, I was supposed to have some, some work over the summer, but that uh, obviously been at home. Uh, But I will probably be going into the field at some point uh, with my husband, who is a uh, studies birds and mostly works in tropical environments. He's just started his PhD. uh, But I'm sure that that will be some field work at some point in the next year or two, uh, where I'll be able to do some photography projects on the side. Uh, Most recently, uh, I was in Java, Indonesia with with him, uh, where he was actually counting, um, surveying endangered bird species that are impacted by the uh, local trade in wild birds uh, for pets. And they were trying to find out where these birds, wild populations were remaining on mountains in Java, Indonesia. And so I got to go there and do an expedition uh, and take some, take some images uh, along with him Uh, of their team on the mountain doing these bird surveys. And they were doing all kinds of amazing work with new technologies, audio recorders, uh, camera traps, trying to really figure out what was on these remote mountains that not many people go to except for local communities. And so that was a a recent project that we did together um, before COVID and the pandemic kind of put us at home. But the volcano expedition was really fun. That was was pretty cool. Um, That was uh, funded by... National Geographic Society and a weight grant. It was in partnership with a volcanologist named Dr. Stephanie Grokey and a cartographer named Ross Donahue, who were also National Geographic explorers. And we received funding to go do this scientific research um, that Dr. Grokey was doing, uh, which actually uses photography, which is why she called me. She wanted me to both photograph the research being done, but but also to help consult a little bit on how she was using cameras. And so they were basically using uh, cameras uh, and photogrammetry, which is kind of a time-lapse photography, um, but using multiple cameras. So you can create more of a three-dimensional time-lapse to study the surface of active lava domes. And so we went to this amazing volcano in Guatemala, um, the Santa Maria Volcano Complex. And essentially, you can hike up a very tall mountain, uh, Santa Maria, to look down on active lava domes below. So it's this incredible natural laboratory. uh, Because a lot of times you can't, as a scientist, get above the volcano unless you have a drone. And certainly not with cameras on tripods. So we were able to get up on this higher mountain, put up three cameras with telephoto lenses. And uh, she had amazing radio transmitters that were able to sync all three cameras. And uh, we were able to create and collect data that they are now using to try to understand what happens on the lava dome right before an eruption. This is a really cool um, complex because uh, the the volcano erupts uh, very regularly. So I think it's every three to four hours. And so it's not a huge eruption, but it, it's a great place to collect data because um, scientists still don't really know how to predict volcanic eruptions. Um, you know, there are little signs that maybe give us an idea that activity is happening. Uh, but one of the ideas is that maybe we could use photography or visual technologies to monitor eruptions. And if there are 
patterns that happen on a lava dome right before an eruption, perhaps this could be a new monitoring technique. And so they're still putting together that data and publishing that research. Um, so I don't, I don't know how effective it will be, but it was certainly a really interesting exploratory study um, to try to see whether or not that could work. Cool. Interesting. Where was that? Did I? So that was in Guatemala, Guatemala. Um, near okay. the uh, city of Quetzaltenango. Yeah, it was really, it was really fun. It's fun to put and, camera technology and, and, to these. Sorry, Jason, to these other applications. Oh, no, you're fine. Yeah, it, absolutely. What were you going to say, Jason? I was just going to say, and you're and you're 33 years young, <laughs> and you've been to all these places. I mean, what an awesome, awesome experience! <laughs> it was that was. That was one of my favorite expeditions I've definitely ever been on, just because it's so interesting. One of the things I love about storytelling, like we were talking about earlier, Dawn, is that when you're doing these environmental projects, a lot of times you're doing them in partnerships with the scientists. And um, same thing with the volcano project is you're in the ex, you know, you're in the field with this expert who can explain things to you that, you know, as a communicator, we're all about kind of translating that, you know, the science to a public audience, perhaps. Um, but I am definitely not an expert on volcanoes. So I, you know, I just got to ask her all these amazing questions and be there in the field getting all these answers. So I love that about the storytelling work is just the opportunity to connect with really smart people. Yep. Opportunity to learn. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Oh, well, and like Mark said, just the opportunity to apply the the passion that we all love photography to so many different I mean, you've just in your career, your experiences, you've applied it in so many different ways that I've never even thought of. It's just pretty incredible. Thank you. And I, yeah, I think there's just so many possibilities, especially today with photography. I mean, because it's so, you know, it's, it's so much easier to share images. We can do virtual exhibits. We can do all kinds of, you know, ex explore and use photography in so many different ways. Uh, I think the sky's, the sky's the limit in terms of what we can do. So for a photographer, one of the first things one does nowadays, if you want to become familiar with their work, is go to Instagram or social media. But for me, Instagram is the platform for that. And I went to your page and was totally impressed with the diversity of images, content, composition, and as well as geographic locations. And I saw a lemur from Madagascar. Have you been to Madagascar? And please blow our minds with the story. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Madagascar is it's just an unbelievable place. So when I was based in Mauritius, um, which is a tiny island in the Indian Ocean, kind of off the east coast of, of Madagascar, I had the chance to go to Madagascar for a month and travel around after I finished the work in Mauritius. And uh, I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, it, it is so full of the most incredible biodiversity one can find. I mean, it it really is magical because you will be in a forest and there will be lemurs jumping all around you. It's, you know, it's like you almost feel like, you, you know, you've walked into kind of planet Earth, a documentary where they where they put all the highlights. You know, you're like, as nature photographers, we're like, yeah, it doesn't always look like that. Like sometimes you go out and it's raining and there's no animals. Madagascar, there's like always animals. You go out on a night walk, you see you know, six different species of chameleon on one night walk. Uh, and it urgently needs ecotourism and it needs more ecotourists because Madagascar, while it has one of the most biodiverse, um, you know, it's a biodiversity hotspot, uh, the forest is in very small chunks, very isolated, which is one of the challenges of traveling there, you know, to get from the baobabs over here on uh, the West Coast to the rainforest on the East Coast, it's quite a long drive and it's dry in and, you know, kind of deserted in between because um, there's been a lot of deforestation. There's incredible, incredible in the sense of, you know, terrible uh, poverty in Madagascar. And so I think more NAMPA members should go and make an effort to look up the tour operators are using, make sure to support sustainable tour operators. Um, there's some great organizations there that do a lot of uh, underwater uh, work as well, like Blue Ventures, I believe is one. And yeah, you can go snorkeling. I went snorkeling while I was there. Incredible coral reefs. It is just like a photographer's paradise. So 
get on get on the plane. <laughs> Maybe we could get some links from you when when this is aired to put on the on the page on the show notes so that people would know as far as ones that you have experience with and might recommend. Absolutely, and I will. My my like little insider tip is that it is very expensive to fly to Madagascar, and anybody who looks at that will know. But if you fly through Mauritius, which is also an incredible place, it is a great way to do a little trip, stop in Mauritius for a few days, go to Madagascar, and I. The last time I look, it saves you like fifteen hundred dollars on plane fare. Okay. Good tip, yeah. then. That's a big <laughs> tip. Yeah, I had an invite earlier this year to go to Madagascar once everything with COVID kind of lifts, and so yeah, that's a great tip, very timely. <laughs> what about the power of ecotourism in places like this? If we could speak on that just for a moment, and what it can bring for those small, potentially impoverished economies, and what it would mean for conservation for those ecosystems and more people who engage in nature photography in those in those vicinities or destinations that's a great topic of conversation so i i know there's a big academic literature actually on the impact of ecotourism on conservation i don't know much about that academic literature so i will just speak less as a researcher and more as an ecotourist and what i have observed and that is that i think it can if if the projects are managed well and they engage local communities and they employ people from local communities, um, they can be an incredible help to people uh, financially. They can also um, encourage conservation and sustainable behaviors. Uh, I know that I've been on rivers and areas in the Amazon where you go down the branch of the river and the branch that has, I mean, this is just anecdotal, but the branch that has the lodges on it looks absolutely gorgeous and you go to the left and there's a lot of illegal gold mining. There's less tourism that's helping to push out some of these kind of, you know, activities that are extractive. Um, so I think it's, it is a wonderful way to support conservation. I think I'm very concerned right now about a lot of these small ecotourism operators um, who have worked really hard to create great opportunities for people to engage with wildlife and must be hurting incredibly at the moment because the tourism business was just booming mm -hmm. and then and then the pandemic happened and so I really my heart goes out to them and I really hope they can make it through this period that's a great point yeah it must be very challenging but also I mean another thing as far as a natural history perspective the species that are there the ecosystems paramount and the most important aspect to protect but you know, it's it's great to hear when there are those locations that get enough properly managed ecotourism or nature photography that the animals are worth more alive for nature photography and therefore can get the right kind of um, protection as far as um, enforcement to make sure they're not being poached or harvested for other purposes because of the importance for tourism and therefore protecting those animals. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very, very important. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, I, I was in India couple years ago so all these um, locations i'm sorry i'm just getting blown away we were at the amazon one one and a half minutes ago and I, we have to I've get into this <laughs> now we're in yeah, india so, okay awesome well, I, I think you know i think we also have india is an interesting example and i am no expert on this but you know i was able to go on like tiger safaris there and i think as photographers we also have to really think when we're doing these ecotourism activities and just to touch on this you know responsibility as well to kind of talk with ecotourism operators. And if we see people photographing in ways that, you know, impact the animals while, you know, in a negative way, I think we have a responsibility to have conversations about that. And I'm not talking about India in particular, but it was just something that um, I did go with one operator who was really good about that. So that made me think about that aspect that they did say, you know, you can't get that close and you, India has a lot of restrictions on how, how close the vehicles can get and how, how to manage those tiger interactions. And I think we, we as photographers need to be willing to have those conversations because as ecotourism develops for photography, people are under pressure to deliver those images, right? We go, we pay a lot of money. We want to get the shot of the cheetah. We want to get the shot of the brown bear. And we, as, as members of NAMPA who have this kind of like broader kind of ethical guidelines, also have to think about um, being able to step back and say, yeah, I really want that shot, but I'm a little uncomfortable with this, this setup. And I don't want an ecotourism guide to feel pressured to create a situation that gets me the image, but that puts the animal at risk. 
And so that's something that I think a lot about with ecotourism and photography. Well, MAP is such a great platform to, to share that information amongst members of good experiences versus maybe not so good. And something to be aware of when researching these, these destinations and trips of a lifetime is being aware that it, if it is a booming ecotourism uh, destination, that there may be some people involved for money more than, than the actual experience. And just to police that or, or, or vet that as one researches. But Nampa, being a member of Nampa, I think would be a, a phenomenal opportunity to network and share information for potential travelers to know about good experiences and, and reputable companies that, that play ball properly. Don's making notes. I am making notes. <laughs> give me some ideas as we talk about ethics and you know how to and I don't I don't think I necessarily want to delve too deep into it but mm -hmm. but in general yes Nampa has a set of ethical guidelines that that we want photographers to really adhere to and you know and think about when they're out in the field it's it's not a do or do not situation but ultimately it's a the do or do not part of it is it the photo is never worth the the challenge that you could or the stress that you could place on an animal in any situation but it's you know, how do you deliver it? How do you help people know how to make that decision? Um, and I know that's something that NAMP is working very hard on, on coming up with that information for not only our members, but the public in general. Absolutely. I think that's that's a great way to put it. And I can tell a story, actually, that made, made me think of that, that kind of illustrates this point, I think, even better, because um, the India example I gave was kind of a good example of how I thought things were managed. But I was once on a, on a, a trip and I had a guide who was a really wonderful naturalist. And um, we found a, a, a snake in the rainforest that was really beautiful. And I was photographing the snake from a distance and was really excited about it. And very shortly afterwards asked if I wanted him to move the snake to the river, which was about two miles, it seemed like, or a mile and a half away. And I was very confused. And I thought maybe I'd misunderstood him. And I said, I don't what are, I know is there, I don't want you to move the snake. I'm okay. And he said, well, I had a photography group here before and they asked me to move the snake. And so I hired some other guys and we moved the snake about a mile and a half to the river and we set it up on this beautiful stick. And then we took photos of it and they took photos of it and they were so happy. And I'm happy to do that for you if you want me to. It was just, I'd never had that experience before. And of course I explained to him that that wasn't the type of photography that I did. And I like to photograph animals kind of in the wild. And that was my choice, but you know, thank you. But, and then we kind of talked a little bit about the biology and did he put the snake back in the place where he found it in the first place? And I, you know, I don't remember what the answer to that was, but um, just kind of having that conversation, not in a judgmental way, but um, just to kind of understand where we were, our perspectives, different perspectives on this. Uh, but that really stuck out to me because I think as we, as we want to get that shot that gets the most likes on Instagram, um, it can be tempting to do things that put animals at risk. And to me, that's a line I don't cross. But ethics, of course, like Don said, it's, it's a very personal thing. And I think by providing a platform to have those conversations, NAMPA can do a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, one of the things that I always tell people is that if you don't have the right situation or if you don't have the right lens to get a, a close shot, step back a little bit. And, you know, those environmental shots, I think, can be, you know, just absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, for somebody that's visiting a place that actually tells, a, you know, back to the storytelling that tells a little bit more of the story of where the animal lives and what the habitat looked like and what the mountains may have looked like or what the the ocean behind it look like, or, you know, whatever the scenario might be. I think it just, to me, it tells more of a story, you know, kind of pulling back and, and putting the animal in that environment. Oh, I agree. So those are, to me, some of the most beautiful images. Is, and they're hard to they're, get. They are hard to get a really hard. nicely composed one, but really, yeah. But those are the ones that really stick with me when I think of images that I remember that I've seen in the last year or two. It's almost never the kind of portrait shot. It's that it's that one that gets all the elements together. Right. And it's keeping an eye out for that. You know, good photographers understand, you know, kind of always are looking at a scenario and saying, you know, what if this happened or what if that happened? Where do I need to be? And what is the light like? Like Jason, I know, is a phenomenal guy at, at watching the light. You know, so you know, anticipating that, I mean, he's just, yeah, some, some stunning things with, you know, working around the light, not changing it because it's, it's nature. So you don't want to change it, but understanding and predicting it and anticipating what's going to happen. I think ultimately that can really improve people's photos. Gabby, I really appreciate one thing you said too, because it's, 
it's interesting. We all see this kind of behavior in the field probably when we're shooting. I think it's really important that we're, we have these conversations where we have it in the right tone. We don't want to be attacking. We don't want to be judgmental. We don't maybe even want to do it right when it's in the heat of the moment when it's happening. Maybe it's something that if you know the person, you can pull them aside later and have a conversation about it and just talk through it with them in a very positive way, right? That just creates tension. Things get heated up. People are starting to yell at each other. And I've seen that happen in the field too. But I think it's important from an educational standpoint to always try to approach it from a from a positive standpoint. So I appreciate you bringing that up and saying that. So. That's a great point. Good advice, my friend. Very good advice. That's the best way to... to to have it stick right if it if it's not confrontational because people Absolutely. get defensive so quickly now any always do um for most people anyway i want to take a, a card out of our co wild and exposed co-host ron hayes playbook if i can and ask you gabby i know it's hard i can imagine virtually impossible because you've been to so many magnificent places what's your favorite experience while you've been out in the field filming photographing if you could highlight one in a story. I should have been prepared for this question. <laughs> no, it's a fun one to stump people with. But but then it's more natural because it'll just come to mind. And, and I know you could come up with probably 20 different ones and just <laughs> pick one. And there's no regrets later if there's another one that becomes, oh, I should have told this one. But, I mean, you have to, I just, for 33 years young, to hear these destinations, to hear about the Amazon, to hear about India, Madagascar, I mean, Wow. And you can see it on your Instagram feed. So there'll be a link there. Um, and of course, uh, your Instagram for people to find you, just if they're listening, they can pull this up is? Yeah, it's Gabby, Gabby R. Salazar. G-A-B-B-Y-R. And then my last name. Yeah. S- and it, sound, it spells just as it sounds. S-A-L-A-Z-A-R or Z-A-R if you're in the United States of America. <laughs> you know, the, the first thing that came to mind for me was actually – in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Cool. Close um, to home. Yeah. Uh, so I've had the chance a few times to go and see the synchronous fireflies there, and mm. uh, which are found on the border between Tennessee and North Carolina and are now found in some other places. In fact, um, a Nampa, Nampa High School student, Max Stone, just did a photo story, I believe, for National Geographic Online about these synchronous fireflies that is incredible, and he deserves uh, all the viewership he can get on that. And the ones he photographed were not in in the Great Smoky Mountains. Um, they were farther south. But I absolutely love discovering these kind of magical places and species in places that I've been going to my whole life. And I grew up in North Carolina and I didn't see the synchronous fireflies till I was probably 19. And then I saw them again this last summer, actually. And uh, it's basically just, you know, you're out in the dark and the forest starts just pulsing with light um, as they kind of come together and synchronize. And I think it's good to be reminded. I mean, I've like I've been so fortunate to be able to go to all these places around the world, but we have so much right here in 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 North America. We have so much in our home state, no matter which home state you pick in the United States or a province in Canada. Um, we have so much to be grateful for and that we should protect close to home. And so that is that is the first thing that came to my mind um, is just standing in the middle of a dark forest and thinking, wow. How did I not see this until now? Mm. I could see yeah. that. I could feel that. Yeah. Those kinds of experiences are special. Yeah. And they're, you know, unexpected and they, you know, they're there, but you, you're not prepared exactly for how it winds up appearing. So, Absolutely. It seems to only happen, at least here, a few days a year. And, and the forest that, that we live in here as a family, I remember when it would occur at dusk, I would rush the kids up into the woods and just make them. I mean, there was no making. They'd stand there and just be mesmerized by the fireflies and just the quantity of them just all over the place. And I don't know if ours synchronized quite the same, but it was just this pop, pop, pop. I mean, 100,000 pops going off. It just you stand there for an hour and just feel moved by it. So that's great. And the, the global traveling thing, I mean, I, I, I love the fact or definitely appreciate what you've seen. And I highlight it because it gives a perspective as a human being about two things, how small this planet is in a sense and how incredibly diverse and wonderful it is. So I highlight it that way, but I, I also appreciate 
100% the perspective of, of the marvels that we all have close to home. Absolutely. You, you can appreciate and be grateful for both. And I think as much as this, I know this pandemic has had so many negative impacts for so many people. And, um, but I think for maybe, I hope for nature photographers who still have the opportunity to get out locally, it's also made us take some time to, to re- reacquaint ourselves with local nature. Absolutely. And I keep telling people, you know, stick to the backyards. If you, if you're uncomfortable traveling, just, you know, put some bird feeders out even, or, you know, plant some bird friendly flowers or butterfly friendly flowers. And you'd be amazed at what, what can appear. The end of summer transition to fall right now here in Southern Ontario, we had quite a drought this summer, but the past two weeks we've had a fair bit of rainfall and the forests have just lit up with all kinds of different species of mushrooms all different colors and sizes and, and just to walk through and, and see that is a wonder too. Absolutely. It's my backyard yeah. story for today. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was something, I mean, I, you know, I met wild and exposed from, you know, I guess it was a couple years ago now was the first time you guys had interviewed me and we talked about, I did, um, I spent a year and a half on the road in an RV traveling around and it was kind of the same thing that I discovered that any place I went and there were places that weren't on my radar that wound up being on my radar. Louisiana was one of them that just have amazing things in them that if you just give it a chance, it's there. Um, you just have to kind of slow down and, you know, we tend to have a fast paced life and, you know, but if you slow down and really kind of watch and, and look and be willing to listen and take things in, there really is a, a just an amazing amount of things here in, in the U S and Canada and anywhere you go. Everywhere, everywhere globally. Totally. Yeah. 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 In some of the smallest places and nature persists. I mean, as far even places where, there's a lot of urban human development. It's amazing what you can find. It's not necessarily our go-to destinations as nature photographers, but for those that live there, there are still wonders that occur. And I think that's something that'll come out of this pandemic is that people will start to appreciate their backyards again, you know, more, you know, local photography and maybe, and kind of back to your ecotourism comment, you know, is it going to have a longer term impact on that? Are people going to say, Hey, you know what? I've discovered all these things locally, or are they going to be, you know, kind of clam clamoring to get back out into those more um you know long-term long travel destinations um it'll be interesting to see <laughs> abby's probably taught us something today and, and i think it is mark that we might be wanting to tell more of that story of the clash if you will between development and nature right so to your you know to that point yeah we don't necessarily always want to be photographing the coyote in the city limit but, you know, there's a story there for sure. So, so it's making me rethink <laughs> a lot about my photography and how I'm approaching it. So kind of neat. Well, there's a lot of people on social media who do that because that's where they live, right? In the evening, they yeah. can pick up their camera. They can go to a green space in the large city and, and coyotes are habituated there, raccoons. There are deer often in them. And there's one in a city that's um, that I'm aware of at the moment, a black face uh, red fox that with a white tipped tail, looks like an Oreo running around and it's, it's quite a way south for uh, a cross fox to occur. You know, you just never know what you'll find. And not that yeah. I've been there and nor am I encouraging hordes of people to go there, which is why I'm not mentioning where it is. Um, <laughs> but you just never know. And then bird migrations, uh, it's a big thing here in Southern Ontario. Any green space that sticks out into the Great Lakes, birds will stop and pause before, or when coming north in the springs, stop as well and rest and, and provide photographic opportunities, warblers and, and such. Anyway, there's a lot to be found um, if people look. And as, you know, just sitting in the woods, I'm not, not that a lot of nature photographers necessarily do that, but if, if, of course, many do at the same time, but if you sit still in the woods for three or four hours, it's amazing what you can take in and see and appreciate from the smallest details of the forest to animals that might come by if you're in a blind or in a situation like that. So there's a lot, a lot of, and, and it all creates appreciation. The trick is encouraging more people to do it. And I think NAMPA is a great organization for that networking. When people learn of NAMPA and get engaged and then obviously with such a diversity of content amongst the members, as far as what people photograph and where they go, there's something for everybody to learn and connect with and communicate and ask questions about and, and spark more interests. 
So we're excited to be to be doing these podcasts with you. I, I love hearing about it and meeting wonderful people like Gabby and, and hearing the stories and even more so this the timely research you're doing with your PhD. It's exciting to hear that the academic world is focusing on these things because it's so important to engage people back to planet Earth because we're so consumed with our responsibilities, with trying to make ends meet financially, support our families if we have them. You know, people are burnt out at the end of the day, they watch a television show, you know, but to have some way to increase the possibility of engaging and, and, and having them care to a greater degree about the planet is something I you know, get excited about hearing. And, and hats off to you, and, and I hope it goes wonderfully smoothly and that you come up with surprises <laughs> that just help direct your content and your research and your work, and you can help with all kinds of nonprofit environmental organizations and, and conservation efforts and education about the big and small and tiny and vast parts of our planet. It's been wonderful to meet you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and giving me this opportunity to talk a little bit about my work and think about photography. Just a couple of things really quick before we end. Gabby, I'm, it is really exciting. I'm excited to hear the results of your study. And I'll be following along and looking for those results to to read that study. Um, but also just to offer it up because I know when I did my own, it was nothing like this, and it wasn't for a PhD. It was just my master's. But I did some um, some research, and I understand the challenges of that. And I'm just offering it up. If you would like some additional far-reaching interviews to be done, I, I'm offering myself as a somebody that would love to maybe do some local. Um, you know, help you with that. Do some local stuff to 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 add to your data set. So Thank just you keep so that much. in mind. I Absolutely. will keep that in mind. Okay. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, great. Well, it sounds this was a fantastic conversation, Gabby. Thank you so much for for joining us and for giving us your time today to to discuss your projects and all of your favorite places and giving some awareness about some of the conservation issues that are out there that you're working on. Again, I thank the Wild and Exposed team, Mark and Jason here today, um, for giving us this platform to kind of get the word out about Nampa and talk about some of the great things that our members are doing. Um, so to get more information about Nampa, you can go to nampa.org. Um, Gabby's given her Instagram account, which is Gabby R. Salazar. Um, Mark and Jason are both on Instagram as well as you can find the Instagram account for wild and exposed, which is just at wild and exposed. Um, and certainly subscribe to their podcast, um, which is where you can download these Nampa podcasts as well through the wild and exposed podcast platform. Mm -hmm.